Last week I shared a message of somewhat confession, but also just of uh, the things the Lord was making me aware of on prayer and fasting. And I appreciate those of you who reached out to me and had communication with me. And uh, those of you who joined me in fasting this week, I appreciate that very much. And I'm still open. I'd love to continue having conversation about, uh, about that. But uh, I, it seems as if the Lord is, is taking me on a journey. A couple of weeks ago, I shared about uh, uh, wanting to see a yearning for, for Christian fellowship, for, to, to see us want to be together with other believers, like to yearn, to long, to look forward to those times, no matter what they are, whether it's Sunday morning church, a small group gathering of some kind, a, a prayer meeting of some kind, a fellow, like a, a time of social get-together with other believers, or of, of any, or whatever it may be, uh, but just a longing to be together with other believers. And I pointed out at that time that a big reason why that's true is because we, when we long to be with God, it is His Spirit inside of fellow believers that draws us to want to be with them. It's the tangible representation of what we get spiritually when we're with God. And it, it reminded me that maybe part of, as we work backwards, maybe part of why we don't uh, yearn for that is because we don't yearn for the presence of the Lord that much. We don't actually spend that much time with God. For if I don't love to be with God, if, I don't, if I'm not fed by my times with the Lord, then it makes sense, right, that I have no desire necessarily to be with other believers as opposed to anyone else. Because there's not that, that kindred spirit inside of me and inside of them that's drawing us together. And so last week I focused on prayer and the reality of our lack, my lack, of withdrawing and being alone with God and saying, I need that. And it seems as if the Lord continues to work some things backwards for me and keeps digging down and say, well, here's sort of why. And then sort of after I get through with that, I, it breaks open. And I say, oh, okay, there's a, there's a why underneath that, right? There's something behind that that's really the reason why. And again, there's something I said last week, and I don't know if, it, how it, I don't know if you caught it or if you, uh, how it struck you, and maybe you thought it should be something I shouldn't say. But it, it, it came out something like this, that one of the reasons, the excuses I have for not praying is because I don't need anything. I, I feel like things are, you know, in, in control. And I've had some good conversation, by the way, with different ones of you. I think it was Jerry, actually, last week outside, reflected afterwards as we were sharing together that, uh, with the whole group that, that one of the things that allows us to, to, to be sort of in that mode is when we are in our same patterns and habits, like things we do every day, like just our normal routines, and we just live life. Because we get used to it, right? And it, there's nothing extraordinary. But when we get moved... I don't know if you like, maybe, many of us don't like this phrase at all, and I'm not a huge fan of it myself, but uh, we get moved outside of our comfort zone, right? Outside of, uh, we, have to, we get moved into some place where we don't, we're not normally at. That's what causes us to be reminded that we need something. Now, on the heels of that, too, we talked about the fact that one of the best ways that I can tell you, one of the most appropriate ways for you to get moved outside of your comfort zone is to minister to other people, is to be used by God to do things with other people. Anyway, out of that, that statement kind of kept coming back to me, and I was reading. Uh, I, I really, uh, this is really how it happened. I was just reading in the book of Isaiah this week, and I ran across these verses, and that's why uh, it just sort of clicked for me. I thought, this is something. And I, at first, it was just me, and I spent time with it myself and working through it and, and thinking about it. And I felt like the Lord was saying, maybe this is something that maybe more of us should hear, so I'll share it with you this morning. I want to start off this morning as, uh, with uh, just giving you three words. I'm going to put them on the screen here in a little bit. Three words, and I want to just ask you that if you take an honest look at your life, 
do these three words describe you? Can you look at your life and say, this describes me? Or you might even want to like, think of it this way and say, if other people are describing me, would they use any of these three words? And there's a lot of words we could be picking from, so this is not, uh, I'm going to make sure I go the right direction. Didn't I? There we go. Three words, humble, contrite, and trembling. Humble, contrite, and trembling. Believe it or not, all three of these words appear in the same sentence in the Old Testament. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66, I'm going to read the first two verses. It's really actually the last half of verse 2. It's really the, the basis for my message today. As we think of these three words, humble, contrite, and trembling, this is what God said through Isaiah. This is verse 1, Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I, to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, let's make sure we understand the context first. Make sure we understand what it's saying. I think it's pretty self-explanatory, so don't have to take a lot of time with this. But God makes a, a plain statement, a truth statement about who he is. He says, the heaven is my throne. That's where I reside. Heaven is my throne, my chamber. And the earth, this, this giant ball that we're on that we feel like is... is a pretty major part of our world, right? Because it's pretty much all we know. We've sent some people in outer space, but it's pretty much all we know. And that is God's footstool. So when you think of a footstool at home, maybe you don't have this anymore, but in our house we still have a, one of those glider rockers that's got a little footstool. And to be honest, we sometimes have the footstool there with it, sometimes we don't because it's not necessarily a, an integral part of the chair, right? Like I can sit on the chair and rock without having the footstool there. Sometimes it's, I want it, sometimes it's more comfortable, sometimes it's just in the way. Now, I'm not trying to make necessarily any statements about that, but a footstool is not the most important piece of, of, of furniture, right? The earth, this place that we live on, is God's footstool. And then he goes on to say, you have a desire to worship me, and you build me houses. He's talking to, back to them, to the temple. You build me temples. You, he didn't say it in this verse, but he, you bring me offerings, and you desire to do things for me and to build things for me. But he says, can I remind you, I created everything. So anything that you can build, it's something that I already made. It's mine already, right? Like, I, I already made it. It's, you, you can't present me with something that's not already mine. Have you ever thought that by have you ever thought of that, that way, by the way? You cannot present something to God that's not already His. By rights of creation, and if you're talking about us, by rights of redemption. I'm serious. Have you ever thought about it that way? I'm convinced, and it has a lot to do with today's topic. I'm convinced that we somehow have this idea that there's something I can come up with that I can give to God that He doesn't already own. It's not already His. We use those phrases all the time, right? Give all of yourself to God. Honestly, that really is just surrender to God because you already belong to him. It's already, you're already his. I mean, doesn't he say that? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be. They're already his. And then he says the words after he's declaring the truth about who he is, how great, how grand, how mighty, how powerful, how amazing, how so much higher than us he is, he says, this is the one to whom I will look. 
Let me ask you something. Do you want God to look at you? Do you want God to turn his face towards you? Do you want his face, his eyes, do you want him to look at you? Do you? I, you know, right? With like, with, with, we're all awake here, right? Do you? Do you want God to look at you? I do. I'm in, I think it's incredibly important that God looks at me. I, I'm, I realize, not as often as I should, but I realize that if he doesn't, if he turns away from me, look what happened to the nation of Israel when he turned away from them. Countless stories in scripture, countless stories throughout history, countless times we can look at our own history and recognize that when God turns away from us, that is a very, very bad thing for us. And here, God says, here is the one to whom I will look. If you want God to look at you, look at these words. I will look to the one who is humble, who is contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. Three words. I'll give you the Hebrew of, of all three. Not necessarily you need to know them necessarily, but just so you know that I'm doing my homework and that if you want to study them further, dig into them further, that's great. The word humble is the word ani. It means afflicted, humble, or needy. Poor, in need. This is the one I will look to, God says, the one who is poor and afflicted and in need. What an absolute shame for me or anyone to say, like I did last week, I don't need anything. Because I just said I don't need God to look at me anymore. Right? Ouch. Contrite is the word nokeh. Nokeh means, it's an interesting word by the way, it means to be smitten, to be contrite, or lame. Now, the word, the, the, the meaning of the word, the word contrite, there are a few other words in the Old Testament that have a similar meaning. Interestingly enough, there is actually only, uh, well, there's two cases, but it's the same instance. One other instance in the entire Old Testament where this word nakeh is actually used, the specific word. And it's the word when it refers to this guy named Mephibosheth. Hard word to say. Who knows who Mephibosheth is? Who's Mephibosheth? Brianna, who's Mephibosheth? He is Jonathan's son, Jonathan being the son of Saul. Now, why is Mephibosheth mentioned in Scripture? Anyone know that? Why is he mentioned in Scripture? You can keep going if you want. When David had his final rule established, his kingdom over all of Israel established, he looked around and he said, is there any one of Saul's descendants that are still alive? And the only one alive through all the turn of events of what God had happened to the family, the only one alive was this grandson of his, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and Brianna mentioned it, he was crippled. When the news of Saul and Jonathan's death, which happened together, uh, when that came, then the nurse that had Mephibosheth as a little boy, she fled, she dropped him, and in the course of somehow that, when she dropped him, something happened to his legs. I don't know if they became broken and they didn't heal right. Something happened, and he was lame the rest of his life. That is the word nakeh. That's the word for contrite that I just is used here. Used in two instances in the entire Old Testament. Lame dependent for the rest of his life ruined you know when you when you when you have a when you have a uh, uh, the word is escaping me right now that I'm, that I'm trying to think of when when you have a uh, uh, something wrong with you I can't say the word when you have something wrong with you that affects you for the rest of your life you think you're damaged right 
forever. Like there's a deficiency there for the rest of your life. That's what this word is. Constant need. And the word tremble is the word kored. Kored, sorry, I said it, can I say it right? Kored, which means fearful, trembling, or reverential. This is the one to whom God will look. It is an the sense of, if you can picture it this way, if I can give you a word picture, if you can picture it this way, it is the sense with which you have if you were to walk into the room of the most powerful man or being in the world and you were to come into his presence, what kind of attitude would you have? What, what would you look like? What kind of demeanor would you carry? How would, how would you carry yourself? What kind of trembling would you have? What kind of humility would you have? What kind of recognition of his absolute power of you would you have? And by the way, the example I gave you is actually exactly true, right? When you come into God's presence, that's exactly what happens. You came into the presence of the most, in, uh, the, the most important, the most powerful being in the entire universe. These are the words. This is the picture that he's trying to... By the way, how would you do that? I mean, just let your imagination run. If you were to come into the room of the most, let's, let's, let's stay with human for a while, the most powerful human in the world. I don't know who that is, but maybe you have somebody in mind. How would you act? You knew this person had control over you, could decide whether you live, die, breathe, get to say anything, not get to say anything, have to stand in the corner, get to come right up beside him. How would you act? This is the picture that he's trying to develop. And of course, this isn't the only the only place in Scripture that gives us these kind of words, right? I mean, these are, these are all through Scripture. Let's start with a proverb. Proverb 3.34 says, Toward the scorners, he, God, is scornful. If you want to be scornful, God is scornful back to you. But to the humble, he gives favor. One of the well-known passages, let's just read this one uh, together. I'm going to read a few more verses. If you, if you want to turn there, you can. If you want to listen, you can. Psalm 51, a psalm where David is wrestling with his sinfulness, his recognition of his great need before God. And he says these words, starting in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you, and here's where we get down to it, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And we all know this next verse, right? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Sometime we have to get to this place. We're not quite there yet, but I'm just going to tell you, sometimes we're going to have to get to this place this morning yet. Where we're going to move, where we're going to move from mentally acknowledging and giving assent to all the verses I'm reading and all the scripture I'm making plain that says we should be humble and lowly and contrite in spirit and, and desperately aware of our neediness and actually recognize it's actually true and really actually get to that place in here. Because I'm sure every one of the, most of these scriptures I'm reading this morning, most of us know. And we all say yes to I guess I won't indict you along with myself, but the reality is when I look at my life, I don't always see the evidence that I really think that inside. Certainly when I look around me, I don't always see the evidence either. 
Proverbs 28, 14 picks up the fear and trembling thing. He says, blessed be is he who fears the Lord always. Blessed he who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And that has everything to do, by the way, that phrase, hardening a heart. Do you know that almost universally in Scripture, I think I could say universally in Scripture, that phrase, hardening your heart, comes with, uh, it means that God has asked something of us and we've said no. That we're not obeying his word whether it's his spoken word with the prophets, whether it's his written word that he's required of people. Hardening our hearts means we're not trembling at his word. It's impossible to. We cannot tremble at his word and then disobey it. We cannot tremble at his word, have fear of the Lord always, but then harden our hearts when he says, do this, don't do that. I want us to see this morning, however, not just that this is the condition we're in and this is where we're at. I want us to see that of all the mind-blowing things that God can do and does do in our lives and in all history has done, He does not expect anything of us. Listen carefully, church. He does not expect anything of us that He did not expect of His Son. When we read in Zechariah 9, 9, end of the Old Testament, looking forward to the New Look at these great words. Zechariah 9, 9 starts with this way. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. That sounds great, right? Shout, give praise. Your king is coming. He's powerful, righteous. He's having salvation. And how does that verse end? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you, you get the, the crash of pictures there? Rejoice, Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Your king is coming. By the way, he's coming humbly. He's coming on a donkey. Right? Jesus fulfilled this scene. We call it the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He fulfilled this scene. He rode in, and they were waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Lord, save us. But this was the fulfillment of, of Zechariah 9.9. Back in, in Isaiah, I'm going to go back to Isaiah for a little bit. When God spoke of his Messiah that was to come, he used words like this. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is of the Messiah. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to who? To the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And he goes on to talk about the other ones. Listen, listen. Again, we've, we slip into church mode so easy. Well, we know all this stuff. We know all But listen. What? person in their right mind when they come as a king hang out with the lowly what person in the right mind when they are the king like by him and for him and through him all things were made that were made and he came to bring good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted and spend time with the lame Nobody in there, no human in their right mind. We've got to acknowledge this. We've got to acknowledge that Jesus did things at God's bidding and it was completely backwards of what we would have done. We use every bit of influence and power we possibly can get to our advantage, typically. And he went exactly the opposite direction. Of course, Jesus quoted these words in the Gospel of Luke, right? When he was in the temple one day, he got up and he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah and he read those words down to uh, just a little past this here and he rolled it back up and he walked back to his seat and he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am that king. And then he began to teach us and he said things like this. 
Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, I'm no different than you. I like when everything works well, everything goes together. I like when I have everything in hand. I like when I come out looking good, when I accomplish things. I like when I feel like things are in control, got a handle on everything, things are clicking along smoothly. I like all that. If I can confess to you, I even, I like being in positions of influence and having people look to me and say, this is, let's get his opinion. It feels good, doesn't it? But sometimes I and we make trades and we go for that instead of where the Lord wants us or what he wants from us. And God tells us this morning that he will look to those who are humble and contrite in spirit, poor in spirit, and trembling at his word. Jesus gave us another picture as he taught. This time it's from Luke, and I'm going to read it because it's a little longer. Luke chapter 18, he taught them a parable, it says, in verse 9, chapter 18 of Luke, it says, he taught, told them a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Oh, church, are we listening? Trusted in ourselves that we were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, Jesus said, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself. He prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Those words I have on the screen right now are the picture we have in the New Testament that Jesus gave us of Isaiah 66, verse 2, the last part. God looks to those who are humble and contrite in heart and trembling at God's word. And Jesus said, if you are humbling yourself, you can be exalted. But if you will be exalted, if you exalt yourself, I said this backwards, I'll just read it. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One more thing, because I feel it needs to be made ironclad from the Old Testament to Jesus walking on earth, to Jesus himself, to Jesus walking on earth. One more thing. Lest you believe that because of the resurrection of Jesus, you see when Jesus gave this parable, he was still walking on earth, right? Lest you believe that because of the resurrection of Jesus, that somehow changes something for us. That we no longer have to follow all the, like it was the path for the time of Isaiah. It was the path for Jesus himself. It was the path for, Jesus, for people when Jesus was alive and he was telling them, but now that Jesus came out of the tomb and he's alive and he's the king of kings and he's somehow done something that has made us impervious, has brought us now into the place where we no longer have to follow that path. There are plenty of other scriptures I give to you, but in one verse, when Paul writes to the Philippians, 
Listen to what he says. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, and he goes on to say in the middle there, not only when I'm there with you, but in my absence, how much more so in my absence, he says this, work out your own salvation, how? With fear and trembling. Did you ever think about why? Why is that true? Why, why should you, why should we, New Testament believers, New Covenant believers, all that Jesus has done for us, all that he has given, he, we have his spirit living inside of us. Why should we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Do you ever thought about, think about that, why that's true? Why is it true? I'd be curious to have some answers, by the way. Why is it true? What's that? Keeps us humble. But why do we need to be humble? Jesus did all, did all the work, right? Jesus paid it all. Yeah, I'm being a little bit of devil's advocate, so don't, I, I don't. Why is it important? Somebody said it. Okay, concept of respect. Okay. But trembling, that's just, I mean, fear, they both have a little bit of do with respect. Should there be any fear, like the other kind? Here's the thing, friends. Here's the place I think we get all muddled up sometimes. We've, and we've honestly had theological clashes about this stuff. And I'm not saying I have all the answers. But here's the thing. From the perspective of God and of what Jesus Christ has done for us, there is absolutely no cause for worry. He has absolutely done everything necessary. And when we are in Christ, there's nothing that will, no, will, will there's no more condemnation. Right? Done. Finished. No kind of fear in that sense. But from our perspective, let's remind ourselves in this whole issue of salvation and needing salvation, what did we bring to the table? What did we offer to God to say, now you can save us? Say it again. Say it louder. Become convinced of it. What did you bring to Jesus so that he might save you? Nothing. And we are still in places where, if I can put it this way, we can choose to remove ourselves from, in Christ, can we not? We will never, Christ will never remove us. We can choose that. Now, again, we're getting to some theology stuff, and maybe, maybe it's not what you want to hear. Maybe it's not where you're at. I'm sure there's people that disagree with me. That's fine. The whole point of this message and the whole point of the, what I see as a common thread through Scripture is, what does Paul say? Be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. We can take ourselves out of that place still. And until we are home in glory with him, I believe this verse is reflecting to us that we had better hang on to our humility and our contrite, broken spirits and our fear and trembling at God's word. I, for one, now again, you've, maybe your theology is different, but I, for one, recognize that there are still places in, in my life that need cleaning up and places that I don't get everything right. I could tell you things just this week where I lost my temper, where I responded in a way that was not Christ-like to my family, to my wife, to my children, which means I'm not, I am not perfect, which means I'm still under the trembling that God is holy and there can be no sin in his presence. And if I don't have Jesus, I am lost. I am destroyed. I have no chance. 
and I want to hang on to Jesus. And I'm not saying this to make us question our salvation. Please, please, please hear me. If you have trusted Christ, then you have no, you do not need to feel condemnation. You don't need to feel worry. But you do need to hang on to your humility that says, I better hang on to Jesus. I better look to Jesus. I better make sure I'm holding on to the anchor. I better make sure I'm hidden in the rock. Because otherwise, I'm not where I need to be. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God, who is the same back there and today and always will be, will always continue to say to us, the one I, to whom I will look, he is humble, he's contrite in spirit, and he trembles at my word. Not at other people's words, at my word, at what I have to say. I ask again, friends, do these words describe you? When you are at home with your family, are these the kind of words that are used to talk about who you are? When you are with your friends at school, when you are with your coworkers at work, when you are out and about, are these the words that people would use to describe you? When you are using social media and making posts on Facebook and talking about the current situation we have in our politics or in our society in general or whatever the case may be, are these the words that describe you? Or are we so full of ourselves and so self-righteous and so sure that we have the right answers that we will be willing to look upon with contempt upon anyone who disagrees with us or sees something differently or doesn't quite agree with us. If I want God to look at me and his word is very clear that he will do so if I'm humble and in recognize the lameness of my own spirit, of my own flesh, that I need him desperately and I tremble at what he has to say to me so much so that I will not deviate from it and say, but God says I can't do this. I can't think about, I can't have this attitude. I, whatever it may be. Again, I gave you some, a couple weeks ago, I gave you some passages that, that, that we could just spend every day reading through, every day reading through, every day reading through. Do they describe me? Am I humble? Am I contrite? Am I trembling? I'm going to invite us to pray today. I would just, um, I, I'm not going to tell you what you have to do, but I would invite you that if you uh, would be willing to give some picture to what I think this picture gives would be to, uh, when you come into the presence of the king, you bow. And so I would invite you to, if you're at all comfortable doing so, to go to your knees. If it's too tight in your benches, you can move on the aisles, you can come up front we typically call it an altar call, but you don't have to. It doesn't have to be called. That just means you want to be on your knees before God. Father, we are here in conversation with you now. And of all the things that were already said, probably what we can do more than anything else to demonstrate our humility our brokenheartedness, our broken spirits, our contriteness, and our trembling at your word is for us to be quiet and to be on our knees, perhaps on our faces before you, 
and listen to you. So God, we're going to take some time and allow you to speak to us. In fact, if you're so inclined, I encourage you, if you're on your knees, if you want to hear from God, I just ask him, what do you want to say to me this morning, Father? And then be quiet. Holy Spirit, we give you permission this morning that whatever the Father has been saying to us, if there's any words he has for us, we give you permission, Holy Spirit, to press them deep inside our very being. That we would not lose them, not, not forget them, not be able to just wipe them aside. Father, even in this, we rely upon you and your grace to give us the courage, the ability to follow through or to be obedient or whatever it looks like, whatever it means. Perhaps, Father, as we face things that we don't want to do, perhaps it's just a confirmation this morning. Perhaps it's a reminder of something. Perhaps it's a correction of sin. But in all those things, Father, it still is true for us that we thank you. We thank you that you communicate with us, that you speak to us. We want to tremble at your word. We want to recognize your great neediness before you. We know when we become aware of who we truly are before Christ, that it gives us the urgency to be found in Christ. And even when we are in Christ, that we uh, have a passion to remain in Christ, to grow in Christ, to be rooted in Christ to be used by Christ so that you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit might get all kinds of glory and honor, all kinds of recognition of how powerful you are. You could take a mess like me. You could take a, 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 someone who's incompetent, somebody who's worried about everything, somebody who's a perfectionist, someone who, doesn't, who gets mad when things don't go his way. 
You can take a person like me and you can bring out good things. You can, you can bring words of healing. You can bring teaching. You can, you can bring uh, things that, that come as wisdom. And God, that's all from you. I thank you and I praise you. Thank you, Father. We're so grateful that you have given us your son, Jesus. You've given us all things we need for life and godliness. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.